Ella, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you so much for having me. So, your website describes you as a climate scientist, presenter and boxer, which has probably got to be one of the most unique combinations we've ever had on the show. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the, the climate scientist part maybe is a little bit more self-explanatory. So I work for the British Antarctic Survey and I'm trying to figure out how the polar regions, so the Antarctic and the Arctic, are likely to change in future as we are warming our planet. But I'm also very, very keen on communicating climate science more widely because I think it's you know the most pressing issue of our time and I think everyone has a right to understand it in a way uh, climate science is not always uh, the most understandable and accessible topic. So I try to do my very best to make it a little bit more accessible. So that's the presenter bit. And then the boxer part is uh, a very, very intense hobby I've been doing for 10 years and uh, do a bit of coaching. Uh, yeah, it's it keeps me sane. Well, we'll be coming back to all of those, but I was quite intrigued to learn about your journey into climate science because it is one of the greatest challenges of our time and lots of young people want to go into it and tackle it for their generation. But I was struck that you didn't actually have a scientific background at A-levels particularly. You actually studied humanities. So can you talk us through the sort of the switch that you kind of made? Yeah, I guess I always thought of myself as being more of a kind of geographer or social scientist. And I was really interested in environmental politics and all the kind of more human side of climate change and how we, we fix that. But I went to university and did an environmental science and international development joint degree. And while I was there in my second year, I had to choose a module and I had no choices that I really wanted to do left. I had to pick a course. So I decided to take meteorology because I thought, hey, weather, that how bad can it be? If I hate it, it's only one term. It can't be that bad. And uh, I loved it. And it completely changed the course of my degree. So I switched to doing way more kind of hard physics and ended up doing this very strange combination of kind of humanities, politics and <laughs> uh, hard meteorology and hard atmospheric physics. And well, I mean, one of the questions that we ask normally more towards the end is like, you know, if, if you were 22 in 22, when would you, where would you be going with your career and, and how would you kind of be starting out? And I guess you being one of the kind of younger people that we've had on, that's not quite so relevant because I'm sure you'd still say the climate. But what would your advice be to somebody that's in the kind of foothills of their career that wants to tackle this enormous issue? What would be the best way of going about it? I guess there are so many ways of tackling this issue, and I think everyone has to play to their strengths. Like academia is one of so many different routes to tackling the climate crisis. For me, it worked because I really love finding out about the natural world. I really enjoy kind of understanding the nuts and bolts of how our planet works. But also, you definitely don't need to have a PhD. You definitely don't need to have a master's to be working in the climate space. In fact, you probably don't even need to have a degree to be working in the climate space and have a really useful, impactful career. So I think it's it's about playing to your strengths and doing the things that interest you because ultimately when you're faced with a problem so challenging as climate change you have to really enjoy and be passionate about whatever it is that you're doing in that world because that's going to carry you through 
And what is the job of a scientist? It's <laughs> a great question I ask myself every day. <laughs> so I guess in general terms, the job of a scientist is being curious and finding out about the thing that you're interested in. And it's the scientific method. It's trying to do things in a systematic way that help us advance our knowledge as a society and as a, a human race. So in kind of environmental terms, it's trying to understand how our world is now. And for me as a climate scientist, I spend a lot of time using that to predict how that might change in the future. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you're similar to a futurist, right? That's also another name for a scientist. Yeah, I guess so. If you're if you're making projections of what might happen. And what more can we do to make academia attractive? Because it sometimes, particularly in the UK, has quite a sort of fusty image of, you know, sort of conjuring up sort of old dons, etc. and all of that. Whereas actually you're at the cutting edge of a lot of exciting things. What can be done to make academia more attractive? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> and I think a very large part of that is changing how academia is as an institution because it is renowned for burning through people. Academia is not always the most friendly place. It's also not very well paid. And whilst most people don't do a job they love and care about because they are in it for the money, it makes a difference because if your researchers are unable to pay their rent and bills, then they're not going to be doing the best research. So I think there's a few things like job satisfaction is is really, it's about the actual work itself rather than the kind of structures that sit around it and actually to make academia more attractive it has to be more diverse it has to not just be middle-aged white men <laughs> it has to be uh paid reasonably and it has to have much more kind of security in contracts because there's so much short-termism in academia and that's the nature of the funding and it's really a difficult problem. One of the things that I think you're doing that's really interesting in terms of trying to make it appeal more is that you are spending a lot of time, as we said in the opening question, in terms of defining yourself as a as a broadcaster and a presenter and using lots of different communication methods. And it's one of the most amazing things about the modern world is there are lots of different ways to communicate with people. You know, it's not the the only route to market is the media it once was, you know, even at the sort of turn of the millennium, really. What have you found to be the most effective form of communication across the different platforms for promoting your agenda? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I use YouTube a lot because I think it's more long form and I can sort of finesse and hone what I want to say. And also I quite like that it's bite-sized because I make videos that are like, I'd say, between three and six minutes primarily and explain a particular topic or thing but then there's also the mainstream media of course you can you have to comment on something that's topical and you have you know one and a half minutes to really get that point across and that's a skill in itself um that I think yeah still still re refining that one I've just got a TikTok I have to confess uh, <laughs> I don't understand it yet. So have we, so have we. <laughs> it's it's a scary and brave new world but um I recognize that it's a it's a very important platform. And if you want to communicate with younger audiences, it's absolutely essential. So I think it's 
trying to do all of it because, you know, you can write an op-ed and put it in the Telegraph or you can go on talk TV or you can make a TikTok and all of those are hitting different audiences. Do you ever worry slightly about burnout though, in terms of you were talking about that in academia anyway, like creator burnout is a real thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big time. I have a tendency to overstretch myself, but that's potentially because I care so much about this thing and climate change is not the easiest subject if you're faced every day by the kind of statistics and uh, facts that we are facing kind of in the, at the coalface, if you'll forgive the pun, it's, it can be really exhausting. And also the communication side of things is very exhausting because you're putting yourself out there the whole time and it's, it's performance ultimately. And unfortunately it's not a central part of most academic positions. So I find myself doing it a lot in my spare time, which is not the most sustainable way of doing it. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. How did I mean in 2021 you were featured in the Sunday Times kind of green power list as one of the top 10 under 30 green communicators and environmentalists. How did that impact your broadcasting career etc? Oh yeah, I made it into the under 30s list by the skin of my teeth there. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else was about 18. Um I don't really think it had a tangible influence necessarily. Maybe it did. I don't know. I didn't have loads of people come to me and say, hey, we read about you in this list. But that's not to say it didn't happen. I have definitely seen an uptick in people who are coming to me and asking me to comment on things, which is great. I don't know if that's, I mean, it's obviously going to have impacted it. But yeah, I don't think there was any one thing I can put my finger on. Yeah, it's intriguing. And talk to us about kind of the research that you've done a bit, because yeah, we've spoken to a lot of people on the podcast who've got specialisms all over the world, experiences of dealing in different continents and so on. But I don't think we've ever had anyone that's main work is based in Antarctica. So what's all that about? Oh, Antarctica, the just the most captivating and wonderful pl- uh, place on earth. So I guess it all started when I, I guess I did my master's and I did a, a thesis on Antarctica and it really captured my imagination. Um. And then eventually I ended up doing a PhD at the British Antarctic Survey. So my specialism has kind of evolved into being how the atmosphere and how weather and how climate is impacting floating ice shelves around Antarctica. So these are these kind of platforms of ice that fringe the entire Antarctic continent and which are sort of gatekeepers to sea level rise because they hold back lots of ice that flows off the Antarctic continent and would otherwise enter the ocean and raise our sea levels. So understanding how they're changing and trying to uh, figure out what is impacting those ice shelves is really crucial. So that's what I've spent quite a lot of my career doing so far. And now I've sort of broadened my horizons a little bit to think about the Arctic as well and think more in depth about the future as well as just the present. And what does the future look like? Depends what day you're asking me. I think it looks not great, actually, <laughs> to put it to put it in a maybe euphemistic way. I think the future would have looked a lot worse a couple of decades ago with respect to climate mitigation, climate action. We were on track for a world of four degrees warming by the end of the century. We're now on track for something like two and a half. And that is a vast 
vast improvements, but it's not going far enough because with every tenth of a degree of warming, the damage to our ecosystems, the damage to our social systems, the damage to our planet ratchets kind of in, uh, non-linearly, if you like. So it just it just increases hugely with every tenth of, tenth of a degree of warming. And we really must keep our impact as minimal as possible. And we're already seeing the effects of climate change. And so far we've seen 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius worth of, of warming and we're already seeing wildfires, we're already seeing flooding, we're already seeing devastating extreme events, storms, all of these things that really have a direct impact on people's lives and their livelihoods. And it's only going to get worse, unfortunately. So it, it really does underline the need to stop it getting much, much worse. Yeah. Although it's quite a positive in a way that the, the, there's been quite a bit of progress over the last two decades. That was framed, yeah, as we are generally quite a positive podcast about the future of jobs, employment, etc. So there was there was some chinks of, of light in, in there. Yeah, and ultimately we are working in a climate field. You know, people are really innovative and there are people who care hugely about this. And it's we are making progress. Not quite fast enough, but that's not to say it's not possible. Well, what are the biggest knowledge barriers that we face? The thing is, we know enough to take action on climate change. We've known enough for decades to take action on climate change. It's about how we use the momentum in the politics, the social science, the economics to actually make those changes happen. And in terms of the scientific understanding, there's still lots to be learned with kind of tipping points, which are these sort of thresholds beyond which the natural system moves into a completely different state. So, for example, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And you you exceed this tipping point, and after that, the change is kind of irreversible. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty. There's lots we don't know about when that happens, if that happens, how that happens. And that's one of, they call it low probability, high impact scenarios. So if that happened, it would be absolutely devastating, but we don't. So just, just, just like explain that a bit, like what that, I mean, that sounds pretty serious, right? I mean, I know you say low probability, but just what is the West Sheet? The West Antarctic ice sheet is a huge ice cap, if you like, in the west of Antarctica, and it contains enough ice to raise global sea levels by 3.3 metres-ish if it all entered the ocean. And there are several different tipping points in our climate. One of them is, for example, the complete dieback of the Amazon rainforest. One of them is the loss of the West Antarctic ice sheet, Greenland ice sheet. There are various different, very important systems on our planet that support life as we know it. And if they were to, to change irreversibly, it would have a very damaging effect on humankind. So there are these sort of thresholds. They're not hard and fast thresholds, but we think they exist and have existed in the past where if we tip over if you like, this point, then the changes in that system will become irreversible on human timescales, at least. And, you know, we enter a completely different world. So if the West Antarctic ice sheet were to collapse, and the, the big question is if, how and when, it would raise 
sea levels by more than three meters worldwide, which is, of course, very coastline changing. Yeah. Uh, Even as a climate novice, I can uh, appreciate that. But you say it's a low probability event, but it's what other kind of catastrophic things like that are on the agenda that could happen? Well, they're low probability, but with every increment of warming above around one and a half degrees Celsius, the probability increases. So I think that's the thing to really remember. The the more we push our climate by warming it, the the more likelihood of these sorts of events happening becomes. So it's things like the dieback of the Amazon rainforest, the, the loss of Arctic sea ice in the summer, the melting of permafrost in the Siberian tundra, for example, a variety of, of different systems that are really vital for our life on Earth. Just to unpack the Siberian example there. So we have in the high Arctic, we have a kind of band around the Arctic. There's the Arctic Ocean, which is, of course, a frozen ocean and then surrounded by continents. So Alaska, Canada, Siberia, parts of Scandinavia. And where there is soil, it is permanently frozen. So it's called permafrost. And it contains huge amounts of fossilized plant matter and carbon and all of these kind of dangerous greenhouse gases, if you like, trapped in this frozen soil. So if it freezes, uh, sorry, if it thaws, then it starts to release all of these greenhouse gases and that kind of accelerates warming further. But also it's trapping a whole whole bunch of of carbon in the soil. So the loss of that permafrost would be a significant tipping point. Fascinating. What's the coolest bit of science you've been involved with? Oh, I've done so many cool things. I'm extremely lucky. Can we just take a moment there how I segued from (laughs) Siberia to the coolest (laughs) bit of science? I'm really proud of that. So proud that I only realised it afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the best puns, you know, take a little while to hit. The coolest bit of science I've ever been involved in was 100% going to Antarctica. That is hands down always going to win. It's the best thing I've ever done, ever. We went to the Antarctic Peninsula and I was involved in this airborne campaign to measure the atmosphere, the very bottom layer of the atmosphere right next to the ocean to try and get an idea of how much the Southern Ocean, which surrounds Antarctica and is still very unsurveyed, how much heat, how much carbon dioxide, how much all the other greenhouse gases, how much it's absorbing and and storing long-term because that has a really uh, important bearing on the rate of climate change that we observe worldwide, trying to figure out whether that's likely to change in the future. So getting to to fly around in a teeny tiny little twin otter two-prop engine aircraft, which fits you, the pilot, and one other scientist in the back 50, 50 meters above the sea ice was just, for an adrenaline junkie like me, fantastic. And what, yeah, what was it like? It's, it's the only continent I've not visited. Would love to at, at some stage, although not a high priority now that I've got two small, two small children. But um, what, yeah, just what's it, what's it like? It's like another planet. It's the closest thing I think you can get to being on the moon. And for me, it really emphasized like the vastness and the power of the natural world, it makes you feel super insignificant. And particularly when you're doing an aircraft campaign, because you have, you you take off from the base where there's, you know, 150 people or something, and then you fly away. And within minutes, 
there's nothing. You can't even see the base anymore. And it's just this vast white emptiness of these like towering peaks and incredible vistas and amazing mountains. And honestly, it's just breathtaking. Sounds uh, incredible. Now, we got introduced via Patrick at Sea Monster. How did it come about? How does that, when you get a message like that, sort of saying, you know, we're thinking of repurposing an oil rig, just talk us through how that happens. Yeah, so at the time, we didn't, we hadn't thought about the actual idea itself. So it was Patrick approaching me and my colleague, Emily, saying, we want to do something that's related to weather. We're really interested in clouds. We kind of want to make it a little bit related to climate and we want to use our strengths as well. So we're assembling a team and we'd love you to be contributors, basically. And the idea just really spoke to both of us. And I think we both let at the opportunity to to be involved. And I, I recognize, I mean, Patrick's amazing and the work that New Substance do and all the drone shows and all of the kind of creative, big design-led pieces they do is all so exciting and it was such a cool concept that I, I was yeah I was really really keen to to be part of that because it's a different way of working to to the kinds that I'm used to and it's obviously a great kind of way we started talking about communicating sort of climate challenges and, and the science behind it it probably is one of like you say the most creative ways that you can actually do it what what was your kind of involvement with it all how did you help design this incredible space so I've been a board member, uh, which is a very generic <laughs> term, I guess, since the very beginning. So I was kind of involved in in workshopping it and shaping the actual idea itself. And all of us together, I'll ad- confess, Patrick was very uh, important in in driving that. But all of us together came up with this idea of of repurposing an old industrial relic from the North Sea. This this gas platform that has had its life extracting from the the natural world and to transform it into something that showcases what we can do, how we can go forwards, how we can turn that history into a more positive, sustainable vision of the future. And that reimagination, that positivity, that optimism that was kind of inherent in that project was so, so crucial. And that was one of the things I, I loved the most about this whole project. What's another piece of sort of content that you would recommend for somebody that wants to know more about you know the climate economy jobs in climate all this kind of space what's the most engaging thing somebody could go watch or listen to oh there's so much good stuff out there i mean the most recent thing that i've really loved was frozen planet 2 the most late the latest david attenborough series I cried my eyes out of the last episode. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit it. I think it's one of the most compelling ways to tell a story about our changing planet. And I think I'm a firm believer in the power of storytelling for action. And I think those stories that come across in that sort of powerful type of filmmaking are, are so important. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, I I love the bits at the end where they explain how they put it all together, right? Like as, as somebody who's quite interested in, in the jobs and, and all this side and how much it's changed in the last 15 years and what they're able to do is 
is really quite inspiring. But also, yeah, there's a lot similar to, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs we, we speak on the show in terms of the amount of effort, time and failure that goes into creating something like that is extraordinary. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. Like the, the failure in so many professions is just not talked about. Science is one big fail. <laughs> and that's how you advance, right? That's how you, you make those mistakes. You, you try something, it doesn't work. You try something else, that doesn't work. But it's that perseverance that eventually you'll, you'll make that, that advance. And it's, well, it's only once you look back and you see how far you've come that you really see it. But at the time, it feels impossible. But those sorts of failures are, are so critical because they help you learn. Totally. It goes back to your point about the passion, right? Like if you don't have the passion, you won't have the ability, you won't, the resilience just won't be there to get up and go again and again. Exactly, exactly. Do you sometimes think about how life might have turned out if you hadn't done the weather course? Oh yeah, big time. Or if I'd never kind of learned about climate change. I learned about climate change when I was 14 with a very fantastic maverick geography teacher. And I think at that point, we didn't really have climate change on the curriculum and it was amazing that we I got to to learn about it and I don't think I would have been so inspired and captivated by the idea if it hadn't been for that. So there's so many what ifs. I don't know what I would be doing. I've always thought I'd like to be a firefighter as a plan B. <laughs> Although I did want to be an actor for a very long time, which probably tells you everything you need to know about my presenting career. Yeah, yeah. No, well, it's a, it's a good way of like moulding all these things, isn't it? I'm, I want to come on to the boxing because I'm I'm fascinated by that. But just as a final sort of thing on the on the environmental side, like I think your point about Frozen Planet Two from David Attenborough is really inspiring. A very you know the cinematic element of it and so on, and trying to explain some of the complex sides of it and impact that's having is an amazingly powerful way. I just wonder what you thought of the sort of just stop oil protesters at the other end of the spectrum with that and what you think of that as a kind of communication and campaign technique. What I think about it is that we need every single hand on deck to change the the state of how climate is. We need action yesterday. We need action today. And everyone has a different way of doing that. You know, it, it can range from me going on uh, TV and talking about climate change. That's a climate positive action. That's something that I feel that like I'm doing that works to my strengths. But also, you know, you can sign petitions. You can take a placard out onto the streets and wave it. You can, some people throw soup at, at paintings. You know, there's so many different tactics that need to all work in concert to make change happen. And regardless of what you think about the kind of specific tactics of any particular kind of direct action, activism, protest, stunt, I think actually the the need, the urgency for action from all fronts is so great that we need all of it happening all at once. But do you not find it, does it not frustrate you a bit when you're putting so much effort into making coherent scientific arguments and these people almost put the, the argument back with, you know, sort of the mass population by sort of just going out and vandalising things. I think protest generally is really important and it's a really crucial way of pushing the envelope and pushing the discussion into the mainstream. Like, say what you want about the specifics, the tactics, whether you agree or disagree with how 
protesters go about it. I think the fact that we're talking about it, the fact that we are pushing what's kind of acceptable in terms of uh, getting that message out into the wider public. And it just trickles into everyone's minds, the fact that this is so urgent. So I think actually in the sum total, when we look back at it like 30 years from now, we're not going to point at a particular protest and say that was the change, but it's all of it happening as a kind of in the sum of its parts. That I think makes the difference. We could probably do a whole another podcast on the campaign techniques of various different things. So I'm sure we could. We'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> but <laughs> one of the but so one of the things like in terms of that was really intriguing about your stories is the boxing element and you setting up, you know, whether it's called a side hustle or or so on. You know, you founding Soul Star, which is an incredible story about getting more women into boxing yeah boxing changed my life and i want everyone to be have access to that because boxing gyms are not traditionally the most welcoming places for women or people just generally people who don't necessarily associate themselves with that sort of traditionally macho way of being whether they're a man or not and we really wanted to encourage people who felt kind of intimidated or turned off by that idea to get into martial arts and combat sports because it's honestly so amazing. My boxing gym, Islington Boxing Gym, that I competed for and now coach at, is I didn't, I wouldn't, if it hadn't been for the community, I would not have stayed there as long as I did. It is the best thing about boxing it's like this family and so supportive and the people I've met are just unbelievably wonderful and boxing has really yeah it's changed it's shaped the the course of my life generally personally and I guess possibly even uh, professionally as well and we wanted to make that accessible to everyone what led you going to do boxing for the first time <laughs> oh a bunch of different reasons I was very angry as a young person and I didn't really have an outlet for it. And boxing seemed like a, a cathartic thing to do. And it is so good for mental health and physical health, of course, as well. But all of that, you know, I, I did one session and that was it. I was so hooked instantly. And I think with boxing, it's either for you or it's not for you. And you know that very quickly. So go and give it a try, basically. Like you'll, yeah. <laughs> But go and give it a try yeah and also I think the other thing to say is that boxing gyms many of them are some of the friendliest places ever but you just have to step through the door and the stepping through the door is the hardest part well I think that is a very good way to finish this interview Ella thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future it's been a real pleasure to have one of our first academics on the show talking about that side of life and somebody who is so much at the forefront of communicating what is a vastly complex topic and different ways. And we will check you out on, uh, on TikTok as well, which is, we've just had a bit of <laughs> oh, success God. there as well. Like it's, yeah, but like you say, it's a real skill defining these minutes and, and so on. Like it is very interesting. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Ella. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels. 
whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok, and of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below. Thank you.